Welcome to this episode of the Magazine Debrief. Uh, this week we are looking at the 23rd of July issue. It is sweltering hot. I'm joined by Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. Um, we will do our best to get through this podcast without turning a fan on, but if any of us just gets too sweaty, you may hear the whir of a fan as it's 27 degrees today, hottest day of the year as we are recording. But let's get started. Okay, so the first feature we're looking at today is quite aptly about being outside, Gronya. It is. It's all about that bit of the school day when you do get turned out, out of the classrooms and into that fresh air, rain, sunshine, snow. Often children are out playing on that playground. So uh, with this piece, I, something that really stuck out to me right at the start was when I was interviewing uh, Dr. Ed Baines, and he's like the king of play. He's He's from the Institute of Education. And he pointed out to me that playtimes only existed for the convenience of the adults. And this was a bit of a, like a light bulb <laughs> moment for me. It's like playtime is what happens when adults needed it to. They're not designed around what children need. But, you know, when it's good for children to have a break, it's all about when the adults needed one. And this kind of epiphany moment of realising, oh, that's a bit backwards, became a bit of a, a theme for this piece. So why does playtime matter? It's not just a gap so the adults can eat and drink and the children can do the same. It's really a very important part of the school day. And the way that we're running them at the moment doesn't always fully utilise that, that potential. So I spoke to the experts about the way you can change the layout of your playgrounds, the supervision of your playgrounds, what you offer in your playgrounds. And lots of really interesting points came out of these discussions, such as the types of different types of play that children engage in. Spoiler alert, there's a lot of them. And the way that boys and girls use the playground can massively differ. And crucially, this assumption that older children don't play, which is simply not true. It just looks different to the way that younger children play. And it's got lots to think about and it's one to sort of read, digest, and then go out and stand in your playground and have a think about what your students' experiences would be like when they're out there. It is a, it's a fascinating piece, I thought, because... We see, as you say, break time some seen often as some sort of carnival atmosphere where the kids just go mental, so they behave in class, right? So it's like they get all their screaming and they're running around out their out of their system, and then they go and sit down and be placid children. But it can only be that if you set the playground up in a way. And what was fascinating about the piece is that you talk really at length about the different types of play and the different spaces those play that play needs, and it hit home with me because. You know, I was chatting to the caretaker at my children's school and he said the problem at the moment with the bubbles is that the three, four are in a bubble and so the, the, they have to play football together because they're in a bit. And he said it's really ruining football for the boys and girls that play because the year fours are just kicking the crap out of the younger kids. And he said it's a weird, you know, that knocks on into the classroom. And I thought, you know, that little tweak has had such a big impact. And yet because the, the playground space is cut down because of the bubbles as well, the room for the other types of play, the other 15 types of play in, in your list just doesn't, isn't there. And these kids are being squeezed out of the playground and then they're not getting that release. So I think there's loads to think about in here. And I think especially during the you know, long periods of wet break, you know, I notice it with my kids when they come home and I'm like, did you have wet break today? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, that's why you're mental. <laughs> and you know all all teachers will recognize that and it's it's something that we 
the it's the invisible lives of children those those interior lives that we don't really know much about that I think when you get older you forget about what it was like to be on the playground and those differences those changes where you've got the threes and fours playing football together and the power dynamic and the impact that that has on that child and the there's a whole like psychology behind it isn't it you know the kids that play football football came up again and again and again when I was interviewing people for this piece and the the way that football's played is more than just oh we're playing a game of football it there's a there's like a, a a ranking order of the children like who gets to play football who's allowed to play football and who gets excluded from that and that impacts upon friendships and that impacts upon their their feelings of their like self-worth and then that obviously has a knock-on effect in the classroom so just pretending that these things are just stuff that happens on the playground, that like the playground's not important, is really such a such a mistake to make because it's incredibly important. Well, I, I find it incredible that anyone, anyone, let alone anyone who works in education, would would somehow see break time as, as this kind of dead space where nothing happens and kids aren't learning because it's so obvious, isn't it? Like I say, it's that social it talks about the piece talks about the social learning of of play, you know, turn taking or or creating a game or or rules or. You know, they say kids create their own rules, don't they? They say, well, you, you, we can touch this bit, but you, oh no. And then, and then, you know, like, like any, anyone knows that thing when you're at a beach and you, you can create a game out of some stones and you, and then you adapt the rules as you go along. And you think, well, actually that's too easy. So now it's a double, you get two points if you go there and you get 10 over there. And that starts in school, doesn't it? Like learning those things. And that's all part of, of the social construct of, of life that you start learning. At that age. So I find it weird that anyone would ever look at break time as this kind of, oh, just let them run around for a bit. Nothing happens out there. And I remember at school, break times would would have a game that would finish at the end of break and carry on the next day, like from the same position. Or it was like, we carry on where we, it wasn't just like, oh, we're back to a blank slate. Like we were building stuff up. We carry on the next day. I mean, at primary school, I remember that quite vividly. And there were like, crazy games we invented, like multi-football games that we had. And it, it made me think a bit like, right now, we're all going back to the office, aren't we? And, all, you know, and that sort of reopening. And one of the massive ways that's been sold to us is like, oh, it's really important for like socialization and ideas and, you know, being creative and sharing that buzz you get in an office that you can't get. And isn't that what we're kind of talking about here with children? It's like they have their structured learning time, i.e. where you do your structured work, and then you have your coffee break where you go and chat and you have a sparking idea in 10 minutes. And that's what you give them at that age, is that time to be a bit more fluid and dynamic. And I think it's so sad, the idea that any school would, you know, might not be their choice, but if you would cut break time, seeing it is, oh, that's they're just running around not doing anything. It's just like, oh, but they are. It's like a world of learning and to be fair to leaders i think it's it's not so much that they dismiss it as being not important but it's that prioritizing mm. of time isn't it and yes. thinking like how can we save time on the school day what can we do well we can we can shave a bit of time off break time we can shave a bit of time off lunchtime we can give them an earlier finish we can do this and this and this means we can put on this mm. this instead and it's that when we're, when we're weighing up these different priorities i think we underestimate the importance of play and not just that but when you've also got teachers in the classroom who when we're sanctioning children we take away playtime and break time as a sanction because they've misbehaved in class the knock-on effect of that is huge because mm. often what these children are learning out in, in break time are the very skills they need in order to behave in class and there's yes, lots exactly, of studies yeah. into why like rough, rough and tumble play is so important for self-regulation and what we mm. want is that self-regulation so they can sit in their seat and behave and learn and yeah, you know, well, as you and also the piece mentions, doesn't it? it says that they perform better academically after a break. So if you think that we need them to get better academically, let's cut their break time and give them more 
lesson time, it seems that that would, at least on that one study, would be counterintuitive. When you've not got a lot there in the classroom and you know that one thing they really want to do is to leave and go to break time and you can use that as leverage to make them work there and then, of course teachers are going to to threaten taking away break time and lunchtime. It's, it's, it's obvious, but... You know, if there was more of it, then it wouldn't be such a big deal and you would just be like letting them mm. go two or three minutes later, which doesn't have a big, big impact. But the more time we yeah. take off, the the worse that situation becomes. Do you think it's worse as well through the COVID pandemic? Because every second counts now, you know, this narrative of you can't lose, you know, every second of a school day is like has to be maximum optimal learning. And I think we've got to a point now where we've sort of talked ourselves out of anything that can't be measured and I think that's really dangerous because I don't know about you two but if I sit here trying to write something four hours it's never going to get done if I if I try for half an hour then go for a walk or have a run somewhere and come back that will be done much quicker because Mm. my my brain's had time it's had that assimilation time and um, I think we've talked ourselves into a bit of a tricky spot with break times at the moment. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Time time away from something is really important to learn and, and think and, and process. And, you know, particularly, and if you're at a young age and it's just moving from one subject to another, from one thing to another, you'll just be exhausted. And then that, no one's happy then. And I think in a way, we need more than ever is is the back to the bit of play. And, and particularly the socialization aspect. If kids are, have been stuck in these bubbles of a few people, and it might not be their best friends, it might not be the people they've got on with, they might, you know, and at that age, it's like so easy to sort of, my view is very much easy to say, oh, yeah, well, they're, they're young, you know, it's like, but it matters to them at there and then. And so you have to take that seriously. And so if they haven't had a good bubble experience, as it were, and they're now happy to get back with a big social group again, that might be really important to them. So the less time they have to do that, again, it's a negative thing. And that's the trouble with the pandemic, isn't it? It's like all these threads of the learning's lost, but the socialization has been lost. And we've got to prioritise. We say, oh, well, they'll lose 40 grand over their lifetimes. So we have to think. It's like, yeah, but maybe if they lose that money, but they're happy and they're well, they're well grounded as an individual mm. that's more important isn't it but we can't quantify that as easily so we go we can go oh well they're gonna lose 40 grand stick them in class for another two hours everyone's happy it's like well maybe 10 minutes more break would make them better mm. but we don't know do mm. we so it's a nice uh a nice segue to feature two down an accidental one yeah okay so feature two this week is our growth mindset column and dan is going to talk us through it I am indeed. Now, the growth mindset this week is a column which has been absolutely knocking them out of the park recently. Some great, great pieces. And this one is by DeMarco Ryans. And he's talking about sort of career paths and how we introduce children to the idea of a career and what a career is and what they look like and what, what's a good career, you know, good in in, in inverted, um, in air quotes. And um, it, it's such an interesting thing because I just think there's such a line that between, you know, education for education's sake, but also preparing children for the real world. and in the piece, they talk about how someone mentions up working in a warehouse and how they would have found that funny if someone had come in and on their careers day and it had been a warehouse worker. And then this teacher sort of says, well, why, why, you know, I worked in a warehouse once and that's a job. And, you know, I learned all these skills there and, you know, people do that could end up going on doing this or whatever it might be. And I just think it's so interesting because I'm, I'm fascinated by the world of work and how we sort of are introduced to it and how in, like much of my school, you know, I remember work was very rarely actually talked about, you know, we, we did cover it. I'm not going to say we didn't, but it was very sort of abstract. I remember having a careers thing where we had some very odd software where you did about 40 multiple choice questions of what you liked and didn't like. And you got like, oh, you could be a, you know, 
um, an IT technician or something. And I remember we used to sort of be silly with it and deliberately go through and answer all the questions as badly as possible. So it'd say like, you know, do you enjoy working with people? And like, you know, option E is no, I hate everyone and never want to see another human being. And we would go through and do all these things. And I remember the thing that came out was um, was golf greenkeeper. And we just thought that was really funny that like the, the, the sort of funniest answer you could get was you could manage the greens at a golf course because presumably you wouldn't have to interact <laughs> with anyone to do that. <laughs> I think the people who hate people most tend to be receptionists. <laughs> no, no. Some school receptionists are the nicest people in the world. Not in schools. Not school receptionists. I'm glad you just throwing some that. shade over, throwing some shade over the GP receptionists who <laughs> who can be quite frosty in my in my uh, experience. Um, so it's, it, I, I agree with you, Dan, on this point. It's, it's it's interesting to see people's notions of jobs and. I was talking to um, some relatives who were in, in their early 20s and I was saying, oh, you know, what sort of jobs are you going for? Oh, well, this one or this one. I said, oh, that's sort of quite an advanced job. Oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm too good for all the other jobs. And this notion of doing your time before you get the sparkly job was mm. a bit lost on them. And I don't know why that is. But, you know, if I think of my career path, I did a week at UCI Cinemas. I did a day at KFC, worst day of my life. Sorry, not not because KFC is horrible, because it's brilliant. Don't sue me. But just not not my thing to work at KFC, I decided. <laughs> did some, worked at a ferry port, worked at a bookshop. You know, was cleaner at my school. There's all these different jobs all added something mm. in to my who I am and how I'm able to do my job. And I think... As you say, Dan, that's not really talked about as much. This is where Gronya tells us she went, she did school, university, teacher. No, no. I mean, I worked since I was 14. My first job, I um, I was a waitress in a 1950s style cafe. I was very bad at it. Why wasn't it a cocktail bar? Why wasn't it a cocktail bar? <laughs> uh, I would have been much happier in a cocktail bar. Um, I'm not very good at making ice cream sundaes. I still always get the orders wrong and then have to like bribe the person into not telling my boss that I'd made the wrong Sunday and like if I just I won't charge you for it just eat it please eat it and don't say anything and um <laughs> I was awful at that couldn't make couldn't make good coffees my the, my barista skills were very poor wasn't very good at that um then I worked at Topshop I worked at Topshop for years and years loved it at Topshop I was shoe manager very successfully nice. I used to get really good sales and shoes all all that came into my head then was the shoe people the cartoon <laughs> I don't know I why you is just like a, a humanistic <laughs> shoe, shoe. People, um, when I, I remember doing um, the when I was working on shoes, we had work experience. Um, kids come in, and they were like, "Oh, why are you making us do like all the most rubbish jobs?" I was like, "This is my job. This is what I do. Like, I'm not making you do a rubbish job. This is what I do every single day, and I really like it. So, so stop moaning. Like, just make it fun, idiots." Um, and then I worked at oh, I worked at Phones for You. That was a big success. Nearly got into a bit of trouble with um, the contracts and stuff there, but it was good. I enjoyed it. I was a good salesperson. And you you then, just you basically just detailed loads of things you've done badly. Like I was a I was a bad ice cream maker. I wasn't the greatest shoe. No, I was manager a great shoe manager. I was a brilliant shoe uh, manager. It didn't sound like you were inspiring the next generation of shoe managers. No, um, it was great. And then I was great at selling phones. I was brilliant. Um, I only got in trouble once and yeah then what did I do I worked at Debenhams but if you do notice that everywhere I worked did eventually get closed down but I think that's like this is so funny I was going same it? for me everywhere I've worked really has always closed down <laughs> like both where I worked growing up loads of places closed down and even professionally 
the two prior to Tez, the two main journalistic outlets I worked for both closed down. Mm. Not you, know, no trace of them exists anymore. So I hope that's not an omen. But yeah, it's funny that how often that happens. I think. I, I think. But it's, imagine it's... I got KFC closed down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all the chickens would be happy. Um, yeah, I've worked in lots of different places. I really enjoyed it. But I think there's um, there, there was an assumption in teachers that teachers just go from university straight, like go from school back to school, and that's a really negative thing. Mm. I don't think that is particularly negative, but I think it's also important for kids to realise you did more stuff than just teach, and you've got a wider yeah. experience of the world. And um, you shouldn't be ashamed of saying, oh, yeah, I, I used to work on a checkout. I used to do this. And it's... It's only by talking about it. You shouldn't ever feel ashamed by what you used to do. I think that's an awful thing to feel. There's all all jobs mm. are worthwhile. Yes, that's what this piece does really well. I think it just raises that question, doesn't it, of like talking to your pupils about work, about jobs, about what a good good job is, um, you know, what you, what you want out of work. Again, like everyone always thinks, I want to be really rich, you know, and, and in a way in this day and age, you, you do because house prices are so ridiculous and all that kind of stuff. But also... How do you be happy? You know, is the happier person the person who goes and works 10 till 4 and, and has a job they love and really makes them inspired but earns, you know, uh, the average salary, shall we say, or whatever, or less than the average salary, than the person who earns 100K but absolutely hates what they do and it's knife in the back and every meeting is passive aggressive. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. What, what do we value as work? Do we talk about that? Do we talk about what a good job is to your soul? You know, will you look back when you're 65 and think, God, I made a difference or I did something I'm proud of? Or you think, well, actually, I earn lots of money, but. What, what was the point? I don't know. These are big things. I'm not saying they're easy, but I'm saying I think talking about this with people, is in, young people, is important. Here's a question for you. What was your like dream job when you were younger? Not thinking about how much money you'd earn or like what you wanted to do. What what would have been your dream job? Well, when it was when I was a primary type age, it was Formula One car driver. Really? Too tall, yeah, Dan. No idea why. You're too tall. I know. I, no idea why. I mean, I wasn't that tall at six or whatever, but I just <laughs> always wanted to be an F1 driver. Be crazy. But, you know. I want to be a postman, <laughs> <laughs> and then later I wanted to be a like I was obsessed with John Simpson for a while, and I was certain I wanted to go to war zones and report on them, which is completely ridiculous because I I don't like that's completely anti me. You like, were scared of going into that town in Wales and having to, well, speak to people. Wales itself. No, <laughs> yeah, um, well, it was very it's very hot here in the Middle East in, in Iraq. Like, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Christ. But no, you're right, Dan, it's, it's a great piece and I think it's useful. I don't know how you get those conversations into schools, but I think we do mm. need to get those conversations into schools and have that career journey. And I think it's sometimes difficult because you think of your career as your final destination um, mm, and you yeah. forget about all the little jobs you had as kids and, and in your early 20s if, if, if you were still working then in, in not your career. But I think... You know, most teachers would have done a few jobs on their way to becoming a teacher, I'm sure. And it'd be worth talking about those, I think. Okay, so feature three, spelling. So, this feature by Zofia Nimtas talks about a, a different approach to the, to the weekly spelling list. Now, I've got first-hand experience with spelling lists because my children bring them home. And I do find some of the words incredibly tricky to spell for my key stage one, two children. Um, but I, I've always struggled to see how else you could do spelling, you know, other than encountering them in text or whatever. The list seems like the most easiest route to, to do teaching spelling. But in this piece, an alternative is put forward, which is 
to make spelling more of a communal activity and a celebratory activity. And so we're talking about putting tricky words on T-shirts and having teams, spelling teams. Um, my view is that this is quite controversial because I think there's, you know, there's a place for rote learning and there's a place for um, fun. But I, I struggle, and I'm going to throw straight over to Gronia to get her in trouble here. I struggle to see how you could do spellings as a team because how do you spot the individual contribution to a team spelling? And how do you stop other kids going, oh, you've let our team down because you can't spell cat? I know. It sounds, it's, kids aren't kind at the best of times. And then when you put them, put them in a team and then you're going to like uh, make one person like shamed for getting the, the answer wrong. And, but then I think, I think back to doing spelling tests and I've done spelling lists with year sevens all the way up to my sixth form students. And even when they were getting them right on the spelling test, like testing them separately, they still would spell it wrong when it came to writing in an essay. And it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there is a, a perfect way for teaching spelling, but if this is a different way and you can try it and it works for you and you get good results out of it, it's not, it's not the worst idea. The idea of putting tricky words on T-shirts and stuff. I mean, I'm an awful speller, so I've got lots and lots of sympathy for people who can't spell. And I've had to teach myself how to spell lots of words as an adult. And when I was in the classroom, I'd always share with students, you know, I find this really difficult. Um, let's look this word up together and like modelling that, that, good, that good practice. And I think really that's the best thing to do is to show them like the the solutions for when you are stuck on a word, how to look it up and how encouraging them to spell check mm. themselves. Because that's what, when you see adults spelling out there in the wild, like look at Facebook comments of people misspelling stuff all over the place, they could have looked it up first. And encouraging people that, you know, spelling is important. Well, could you with the team thing, could it could it be done where rather than them doing it separately in a team and you pull it, they actually sort of debate, you know, you say, right, how do you spell thunderous? And they always like three of them, they go, mm. I think it's T-H. And then, no, no, it's it's you, you know, could do it like that. That's a good point, actually. Way around that. But then would that help with them? Um, isn't the idea that you correct misconceptions as quickly as possible? Well, that's, yeah, I don't know. Something, is, that, is that good? Or is, or is that at least another way of like, you do that on on occasion as a way of the just... The peer learning stuff, yeah. I think, a bit. I think you're right there. And I, I think probably I was a bit harsh at the start because I think actually there's a midway here. I think the lists alone aren't, aren't great. I think, mm. you know, if you're taking the same list home every week or different lists, sorry, but the same level list and you're still struggling and the parents are struggling and I think that's not good for anyone. It's not motivational. But likewise, having fun with us on a T-shirt, I'm not sure. I think there's, a, as always, there's a midway between the two. Um, and I think we need to be careful with spelling that you don't get stuck between this rote and, and fun place and try and find some mid ground where you try and find the best solution, maybe the best solution for each child, even, you know, mm. what works at a child level rather than a class. Oh, level. I'd even say each word, different things work for different words when you're, when you're struggling with the spelling, like for some words, mm. it's for me learning the etymology of understanding, like how the word breaks down. And that's why it's going to have this pattern in there. But then other words, like necessary, I've just always got to do that mnemonic, like the never eat cake, eat strawberry sandwiches and remain young. And it doesn't matter. Ooh. Yeah, that, love that one. I like it. That's a, that, and I, yeah. I learned that in my can you 20s. Remember the, can you remember the Mississippi one? Um, is it the Miss... That's, is that the Mrs... Yeah. No, it's Mrs. Not. M, Mrs. I, 
that one, but I, I can't remember the full thing and I've never had reason to no, write Mississippi no. as yet. So it's, it's some of those sort of um Those, those learning rhymes. techniques that were really good. I don't know whether, I don't know whether you're sort of insinuating they're growing in a way that that's they're kind of like, oh, it's, you know, how silly of me almost. But I just think actually they, they work really well. Like the planets, yeah. like I can remember yeah. the planets through that and lots of things like that. And and you just think well, they're on for whatever reason, they work. Yeah. Like humans remember stuff. It's like, in a way, it's like, Remembering the order of the planets, I have to learn something else additional, which is, you know, my very easy method just speeds up naming planets. And now I can remember the planets. So I said, why not my brain just go, remember the planets? <laughs> but I have to learn this other thing as well. And then remember the names of each corresponding planet. But it works better than me kind of go, uh, Mercury, being, you know. But I think so they work. I think if they, I think if they work, like for spelling, if for whatever reason you come up with a kind of quirky that that student really yeah. likes that, I think sometimes you can almost like just go with it. You know, it works. Don't question it. You know, not too I much. Think anyway. You're right. It's that individual thing. And then, but I also want to bring in here those those words, not like necessary, where it's hard to remember how to spell, but the words you do know how to spell that you consistently spell wrong. Like for me, it's there and there. The T H E I R T H E R E. I know. I, I completely understand which one both is used in. But if I'm writing quickly, I always get it wrong, <laughs> and I always have to double check it. And it's it sounds so simple and stupid, but I will always get that wrong. So I was, I was going to ask you two, have you got any similar sort of, I guess, words that always trip you up? Mine's the classic effect and affect. And I still can't. Mm. I think that's hard. I think that is hard though, effect Do and you? affect. I'm always think, embarrassed to ask. Yeah. Like if I want to check with somebody and they'll say, oh, it's obviously this. Like, oh yeah, I know. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> You need you need more considerate friends because effect and affect is hard. As is there's a there's another one that's similar to that, isn't there? there well, there is. are like practice and practice is practice one I, practice, I really yeah. struggle with. And there's a good technique. I don't know if it's with that way. You can if you replace it with the word advice or yeah. advise, you can work it out because yeah. then it would make sense or it wouldn't make sense. I think I think I've said this before, but I also so the word I really struggle with is apologies and apologize. So I often write an email and you, know, yeah. you just say, oh yeah, I apologize for that. But it sounds like saying. My apology for that, or whatever. Apologies, apologise. Get it wrong. I just, I, I refuse. Sorry. I just, I'm sorry about that. I just, whenever I get stuck, it. And that's something when I, my professors of English at university said to me, I, we were having a discussion. I said, I can never remember how to spell it. And he said, Well, just use this word instead. And he said, You know, if you can't do it, don't try. And it was like he was kind of just being honest. I was like, Yeah, that's really good advice, actually. Like, why just try and spell a word you can't spell? I think just that's find um, another one. <laughs> I think that's bang right. And I think there's not enough of that in. But teaching around that, it's only something I learned when editing or, or proofing or writing for journalism is that if you're trying to make something work, try it a different way, like especially mm. with sentence structure. So you're trying to make the sentence work. You're like, Christ, is that the right word in that context? You're like, well, let's just reverse the sentence. Let's just mm. write that sentence a different way. Yeah. And you, this rules-based approach to teaching English can sometimes lead to people not being able to think like that in that way of, well, just just write it yeah write sorry rather than apology and people yeah. are, can you do that well yeah you can you can you know <laughs> and it does require i guess a broad vocabulary um to be able to do that but i think you know that's come a long way especially in secondary schools with the vocabulary and maybe spelling's becoming more of an issue in secondary schools because those words in in secondary are becoming so broad i mean i, I go into schools now and you know with especially with the use of knowledge organizers where they have all the keywords and stuff like that I think we're getting to a point where kids are are getting much broader in their vocab than before and perhaps having more problems with spelling as a result. 
I don't know. Do you know, I'd love to see a comparison of essays that were marked as, you know, full mark essays at GCSE standards. So 16 year old in the old GCSE would have been the A and then it was the A star and then like through the decades and look and compare because I think that would be really interesting. What would be your hunch? No, I, 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 don't, I don't know if they'd be that different. I, I think they'd be quite similar. I, you see all these, you know, oh, the ways we used to teach in the old days were mm-hmm. so awful. And then you're thinking, well, maybe, but we're all quite educated adults, yeah. I like to think. Uh, we're still making massive breakthroughs. And that's not to say that the teaching's not um, important. Teaching is incredibly important. But maybe the way the outcomes are more important than the journey sometimes. And maybe the outcomes weren't as bad as people think they were. No, I was really surprised um, when I looked at knows? some of my old essays I was having clear out the other week. And I always think of the things that I wrote at GCC as being like really rubbish and like I can't believe. Like, you know, you, you think back to what you thought when you were young and you think, oh, it was rubbish. And reading the, I was like, oh, actually, that's pretty good. Like, that's, I, I was surprised at how good they were, considering how I thought that, you know, I, mm. all I did when I was at secondary school was we just read books and talked about it. No one showed me how to write an essay. And today, you know, we, we teach every single little bit of it such, such detail. And then, I don't know, I just, I think it'd be interesting. I'd really, really like to see them all laid out and like look at the, look at the differences between them. I wonder if you took 30 different essays from the, the late 90s or mid 90s say mm-hmm. and you took 30 different essays from 2020 would there be more variation in the 1995 essays than there would be in the 2020 yeah. essays and you could compare like those really open-ended questions that we used to get on the old style GCSE that you could get get in the 90s which is like you know write about such and such a day that kind of creative writing exercise and comparing and I'd, I'd be really interested to see what the differences are well if the EEF are listening <laughs> we have we have the idea. We haven't got the research uh, knowledge to to build the study, but if you lend us someone, um, we will do that study for you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, okay, so that's it. that's all for this week. We will be back next week, uh, hopefully in less sweaty conditions. Um, but read this week's issue; it's fantastic. Some gr- great artwork, and uh, looking forward to your feedback. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.